Hello and welcome to season two of Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su, and I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with firsthand knowledge of Asia. We have with us today Alfred Nakasuma, former director with the United States Agency for International Development. Mr. Nakasuma has served USAID missions in Bolivia, Guatemala, Indonesia, the Philippines, the Regional Asia Mission in Bangkok, and in Washington D.C. He was the former director of the USAID's Asia Regional Environment Office, overseeing foreign assistance for environmental activities in 24 countries. He most recently served as a USAID development diplomat in residence based at California State University, Long Beach. In the following clips, Mr. Nakatsuma speaks about the current state and future of environmental work, particularly in the Asian context. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We begin the episode with Mr. Nakatsuma introducing himself and his work. I spent about 30 years of my life in the U.S. government with the U.S. Agency for International Development doing international development work. Um, I started actually before that as a Fulbright scholar in Peru and had a contracting job in Bolivia. But, but since then, it's been 30 years with the U.S. government doing international development and mainly environmental activities. The last 16 years or so I've spent in, in Asia and, and had the privilege and honor to, to be the head of the bilateral environmental program in Indonesia. Um, after that, I was also the head of the regional Asia environmental program based in Thailand. Each of those were about five-year tours. And um, and these are fairly large responsibilities, I, I would say. Um, each of the offices had about uh, a $200 million total budget. And this was the U.S. government's largest effort to promote environmental conservation and management of natural resources in the case of Indonesia in a bilateral sense and in the case of in the case of Thailand, in a regional sense, where I worked in about 14 countries or so, most of them in, in the lower Mekong region. Thank you for that introduction. So jumping straight into the topic of this episode, from your perspective, what are some of the most pressing environmental issues faced by Asia today? Well, sure, that's a big question. And of course, it's a big region. So uh, I'm going to try to put it in terms that that would make most sense. When you say pressing, you know, my mind goes towards, okay, define what pressing is. And pressing to me, it, it's not so much an isolated incident like an oil spill or a fish kill or something like that. Pressing, in, in the case of the environment, really means endangering life as we know it. And that sounds rather dramatic, but, but actually that, that's what climate change is. And I would say the, the most pressing environmental issue for all of Asia and the whole planet uh, that would change life as we know it is climate change. That, in my mind, is the most pressing environmental issue. There are other environmental issues as well. Interestingly, they're all, they're all integrated. They're all related to each other. I, I would call another pressing problem the loss of, of, uh, of biodiversity. Loss of biodiversity means basically the loss of life forms, both in the ocean as well as in terrestrial areas. And that's happening on a scale that is creating the term the sixth mass extinction. You know, if, if um, a snail darter or a spotted owl becomes extinct, a lot of people say, ah, well, so what's the big deal? 
Um, or if an elephant species goes extinct, well, nice animal, but so what? You know, I, I live in New York or whatever. I, that doesn't really affect my life. Well, the problem is that so many species, and not just what we call charismatic megafauna, but even insect species, are losing their life. You know, each each form of life is like a, a leg on a table, and you you know, and this table has many, many, many legs, but you keep on taking out one leg, take out another leg, take out another leg, take out another leg. And after a while, the table can crash down. And that's actually what's happening. And we've seen it already, uh, ecosystem loss, as well as biodiversity loss is happening at, at an alarming rate. And, and this bodes really poorly for sustaining life as we know it on the planet. It's also related to climate change, but in and of itself is, is an insidious problem. In, in Asia, we have the expansion of palm oil plantations, and there's also pulp and paper. And this kind of problem is happening all over the place in, in, in more equatorial Asia. But it's happening so quickly, it's resulting in extinction, and it's destabilizing ecosystems. And these kinds of changes are, in my opinion, the most pressing ones. They, they happen an inch at a time. Just a general answer to your question, but for, for pressing, I, I would say the largest ones are climate change and biodiversity loss. Building upon that, what have been the major challenges in addressing these issues that you just mentioned? You know, after having spent, I spent a lot of time on environmental issues. I spent 10 years in South and Central America as well as all over Asia. You know, I worked in China, the South Pacific, uh, and focused a lot on the ASEAN countries in the Mekong region. And, you know, putting all of this stuff together in my mind, I, I think one of the biggest problems is something that technical folks and scientific folks and even policy folks can't get their hands around. And I think it's, a, it's partially a moral problem because what's driving so much of this deforestation and, and overfishing and over, over everything is, is greed. It's, it's simply greed. You know, the, a lot of indigenous cultures teach, and this is, no, this is not a cliche, it's actually true, take what you need. You know, the, the forest is there, the oceans are there, take everything you need, but don't take more than you need, just take what you need. But that's not how our societies work. It, it really seems to be take as much as you can, the more the better, make a lot of money, get a lot of profit, maximize profits for that matter, more more luxury, get more stuff. And that idea is driving tens or tens of thousands of hectares to be cut at one time to produce a whole bunch of palm oil or fishing nets the, the size of two football fields to take thousands of tons in one fishing event. The rate at which we're pulling things out, which goes beyond need, you know, certainly if we talk about um, um, elephant tusks and uh, rhino horns. Th these are these are not needs. These are not needs, and, and we're we're taking everything that we can, and that is a very very hard thing for people to to manage. Uh, apparently, in a desire for for people to just want more and more. So that, that's one problem. Tied to this, environmental work is is interesting in in the in the field of international development. Some of my colleagues work on maternal child health care, basic education, you know, you, with those, you have a situation where nobody is against that. Nobody's against babies having enough food. 
nobody's against kids learning how to read. But in the environment, if you impose some kind of management scheme, you get people fighting you because no, no, that that's exactly where the oil is, or that's where the timber is. No, I want that. I want. That. So we're always fighting. The same is true in aquatic ecosystems with fish. So whenever there's a management scheme that's that's imposed on natural resources, it's a fight. It's a fight. And who are you fighting against? You're fighting against people with money people in business, people who, in the case of the United States and other developed countries, have they pay for lobbying activities to get politicians and folks to legislate for them or in support of them. So the problem is environmental work is often conflictive with well-capitalized industry and often finds itself uh, going against what a lot of politicians like to do because they want economic growth as well. They benefit from that. So it, it's, it's fraught not only with biological, technical problems, but po- political problems and problems against wealthy, powerful industry or economic interests as well. Thank you so much for that comprehensive answer. So shifting our focus back to Asia, can you talk to our listeners about how environmental work in Asian countries has really evolved throughout history and what the state of environmental work in Asia looks like today? <laughs> okay. Uh, I've been around long enough to, to know some history and and every every historian will have their own version of history. So I, I don't expect it to, to agree with many of my colleagues, but uh, this is this is my personal take. You know, um, I was actually around when NEPA, the, uh, the Environmental Protection Act of the United States in the, in the Nixon administration was, was uh, legislated and, and we created policies that created environmental impact assessments and, you know, there was a legislation phase. Let's call that phase one. Laws. Can't do this. Uh, must do that. And I, I think Asia actually went through a legislation phase as well. A, a lot of that legislation in that first phase um, I, let's let's say it resulted in this concept of put a fence around it. In other words, protect it. You know, don't don't let the clear cutting industry get into this pristine forest. So legislate that into a protected area or a national park or a reserve or something like that. So well intentioned and and I would say even necessary to a certain degree, but maybe a little naive. But let's call that phase one. Phase two, I think people realize that we have to work with the communities because in that formally designated national park, oh my gosh, there are about four or five villages of people living in there. And how are we going to enforce the law that they do this or that? Or the the timber companies are sneaking in at nighttime and, and cutting down. And the only way that we could enforce that is to work with the local community so that they, when they hear the truck, they're the ones who tell us or they're the ones who are on the front line and actually do something about it. So phase number two, I, I would say, is, is the realization that you've got to work with the locals on a community level. And that took the form of community-based forest or, or working with fishing communities because they're the ones who are the eyes and the ears in the ground uh, in the most critical area. So let's call that phase two, work with the communities. I would say in, you know, to overgeneralize, the third phase, and we're getting into like, the 80s and 90s, and it, it's still true today, but you know, the big onset was at that time. Working with not only the communities, 
but let's work with the private sector. Let's work with, with those, with industry. Let's work with those well-capitalized businesses that certainly have a role in the destruction and maybe even the management of the, these kinds of areas. So, you know, you know the, the environmental movement started working with the enemy or going to the dark side and working with oil companies and working with timber companies and working with those industries that to a certain degree were responsible for the destruction. And maybe, you know, the thought was maybe we can make them feel responsible and think long-term so that they can be part of the solution and not part of the problem only. So let's call that phase three. I would say in, in general terms, we're now into the the fourth era, which is, let's call it a combination of everything, or at least a lot of things, and that is working with data and technology. Because industry wants need and needs data, they value data, and data comes from people and uh, and their use patterns. And there's mobile technology that can accumulate this data and it could be used for management purposes it could be used for good things it could be used for bad things but of course we want it to be used for good things and so there's a push uh, and it, i would say it's still in its infancy stage and and i think it's going to be a pretty long stage and it'll always be with us from this point forward it's it's working with technology and data and it is actually a combined people um, both on the supply and the demand side through information and through technology like mobile technology, internet connections and cloud technology. So so that that's what we're working on, on now. And uh, we, we've got a long way to go. Of course, technology continues to advance. And uh, with each advancement, there are a lot of really smart and good people working on the use of this stuff to help environmental management purposes. So you mentioned that we're in this phase where technology will be playing a really big role in the future of discussing and addressing environmental issues. So if you could just um, go over some of the types of technology, such as big data, smart technology, renewables, and stuff like that. There's a lot going on in this space. I'll mention just uh, a few terms and, and, and give an example, and hopefully that'll give uh, your listeners an idea of, of what these things are and what they can be used for. So Big data. Big data is a, is, a, is a massive term. I think a good example of the use of big data is it, it involves remote sensing. I'll give two examples on this. Number one is, as you know for sure, there's all kinds of satellites in the sky. Um, there are some com- private companies that have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of sat- mini satellites in the sky for commercial purposes and otherwise. They are tracking things that move. And let's take the oceans first. You know, ocean boats, certain class of boats in certain countries are required to have something called VMS or vessel monitoring system. All this information that's going up to all these satellites are being collected. That's a ton of data. That's big data. So in general, you could say that every boat on the water, all big boats, let's say, are required to report positions are. And so you're getting tens of thousands of of pieces of information from all these boats uh, every minute. So what are we doing with with that big data? Well, one thing that's happening is is really smart people have devised algorithms to determine what those boats are doing. And then you can therefore tell based on what time it is, what, what time of the year it is, and where they're located, whether that is legal or illegal. That's big data. Big data is telling us through these algorithms, through this satellite gathered information whether this boat is doing something illegal and 
legality is, let's call it the first step to management. Uh, I think another huge way to use technology for environmental purposes is, is the cell phone, mobile technology. There are a lot of organizations that they're working on on algorithms to draw from internet and SMS and uh, messaging apps like WhatsApp and Line uh, information related to people smuggling things, people doing illegal wildlife trafficking. Um, blockchain is, is a term that's being used quite a bit. There's a lot of elements to, to blockchain. One possibility for using blockchain in a way that would be really helpful for the environment is traceability. Let's call that the ultimate management tool where you know where this piece of timber that's in your guitar, for example, where it came from. Was it cut down illegally? How was it cut down? Who cut it down? When was it cut down? That's what traceability is. There's also fintech. Uh, fintech is also a large term, but uh, I'll give an example. You know, a lot of these environmental problems that we have now are, are so complicated. They're so big. They require, we're not looking at solution in terms of millions of dollars. We're looking at solutions in terms of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars. And how do you even approach working on a solution that requires that amount of resources? Well, you know, big data, there's also big finance. In a nutshell, getting the private sector involved. And if you get the private sector involved, it means that they want a rate of return. It might not be as large. It might not be as immediate. But you can approach problems with T, trillions of dollars requirement through the private sector. And that will require, let's call it uh, an approach that requires a rate of return and profitability. And that means mixing your tools that are available to reduce risk, um, to do loan guarantees, political risk insurance, mezzanine financing, terms that the use of which will make investments more attractive to the private sector and therefore get their money to support environmental solutions and not just create problems. Thank you so much for that comprehensive overview. It's really interesting to hear about the different strategies being used. So something that we are wondering about is what is the potential for using this new technology in Asia? I would say probably more potential there than any other region. You know, I've, I've worked in Africa. Uh, I've, I've worked for quite a while in, in Latin America, and, and they're applicable there too. But for a whole bunch of reasons, I think they're most applicable in, in Asia. You know, you have dynamic societies that, that really have a lot of faith in technology and whose markets are built to a large degree on on technology and you have a population that that tends to use mobile technology a lot they're not afraid to use data as well you could of course look look at china and their use of data and see that this is a region that's moving forward that knows technology and data are really important to their future they're not afraid of it and they're dynamic and i've seen so many applications of these very things in Asia more quickly than the West. So I, I think the, the future looks bright for these kinds of innovative technological solutions to environmental problems in, in Asia more than anywhere that, that I've had the, the pleasure of working in. So bringing our conversation to the present situation that the world is currently in, can you talk a little bit about whether the current set of environmental problems is somehow causally related to the COVID-19 virus? Great question. And I believe the answer is absolutely yes. You know, this is this is a scientific issue. But I have personally worked on on a couple of environmental problems that I've been told 
by expert scientists that they are definitely causally related. For example, anti-wildlife trafficking. We, we know that people's need or, or desire to not only wear things like furs or ivory ornaments or be medicated by animals' bile or their paws uh, or their scales in the case of pangolin or their penises in the case of tigers. This brings obviously somebody into contact with those animals. You know, they're not robots that are catching those things. They're, they're snared and, you know, it's a bloody mess when you pick up your animal from your snare or they're shot and their faces are hacked off in the case of rhinos and, and elephants. And it's a bloody mess there too. And, you know, there are all kinds of species that don't normally ever come into contact with humans, whether dead or alive. And, and illegal wildlife trafficking is bringing these species, it, it might be for food, it might be for medicine, it might be for ornamentation, but it's, this is happening all the time because people want those body parts, fur, tusks, horns, scales, whatever. So that is, that's, that's a driver, that's, that's a pathway, that's a vector for increased human animal interaction and that's what a zoonotic disease is and that and COVID-19 is is a zoonotic disease it's a virus that comes from an animal that's transmitted to human it might be genetically mixed in the process through an intermediate species of animal but it ends up in a human and we have a vulnerability to that virus because we have not evolutionarily adapted a defense against it so it just wipes us out so illegal wildlife trafficking is happening, and that is increasing the interface between animals and humans, and that is increasing the possibility for transmission of these viral diseases. Another causal relationship is, again, deals with the increase in, in interface between humans and animals, and that's, that's destruction of the environment. You know, as forests get chopped up, there, there's all kinds of animals in forests. They don't want to see humans because usually what it means is that they die. So they're hiding. But as we destroy their habitat, they get squished into a smaller and smaller area. So as you, as you destroy the habitat of these animals, and it could be monkeys as well as tigers or, and everything else, or mosquitoes for, for that matter, you're going to get those animals interfacing more with humans and guess who wins when that happens you know animals die because of you know it could be for bushmeat it could be for in, in the case of really poor populations in, in tropical forest areas they eat mo monkeys for protein not necessarily a bad thing but when you have monkeys that are carrying viral diseases that could get into the village well you get my point as interface between humans and species that we don't normally interact with increases the chance for zoonotic diseases and viral transmission also increases. So just two examples of the, the causal relationship between environmental destruction and zoonotic diseases like COVID-19. Those are some really important insights. Thank you so much for your thoughtful comments. So we'd like to end all of our episodes with a fun question for our speakers. And our question for you today is, what was your favorite USAID mission and why? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's very true. This sounds corny, but it's true. I've loved all of them. I, I, I had a great career with aid and I was posted to many places. 
And it's a super rewarding career to be in the game, to try to do something to help the planet, whether it be help people or help the, the, the animals or the planet itself. It's a privilege and an honor, and I've loved everywhere. There are two places that I, I do want to mention as, as being super wonderful. Um, it was my first tour in aid, and that was in Guatemala. Uh, I spent five years there. Just lovely, lovely people. In my opinion, a, a noble people in a lot of ways. They're very hardworking, very down-to-earth. I, I left my heart there in, in a lot of ways. And, and, of course, I spent two tours in Indonesia. It was because the first tour, I couldn't believe it could be so fulfilling and interesting and enjoyable. Uh, so I, I, I went back for another tour, and that was from the year 2007 to 2012, the full five years. Charming, lovely people, an incredibly interesting country, complex, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, and the range of ecosystems to work with are, are spectacular. It only achieved independence in, in the middle of this uh, of last century. And so it's, it's finding its way and it's moving, I think, in a very positive direction. The people are optimistic, they're energetic, they're enthusiastic, they're open. And I've absolutely loved my time among the Indonesian people as well. So all the experiences have been helpful and formative and, and beautiful in somewhere or another. But uh, special mention to, to those two fabulous countries. That is a really sweet memory. Thank you so much for sharing that. So, Alfred, those are all of the questions that we have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Asia Unscripted. Thank you for hearing me out. I really appreciate the ability to to share my views and hopefully they're somewhat helpful, at least in terms of understanding. I want to encourage people to, to, to get involved and do whatever you can, you know, the earth and life as we know it is, is a precious thing. And it, believe it or not, I, I really believe it's slipping from our fingers and maybe we won't suffer the major consequences of that. I think maybe the kids and the grandkids will unfortunately have that, but we are the generation that's been chosen to actually prevent this kind of negative future from happening from our children. And so we owe it everything that we have to get in the game and do whatever little we can to support life as we know it. Thank you for having me on your wonderful show. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you'll find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at US Asia Institute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute. This and all US Asia Institute podcasts are made possible in part by the support from Las Vegas Sands, Merck, Fairfield Maxwell LTD, Airbnb, AIG, Phillips, and others. 